It's a little different look when you walk in this morning, isn't it? This work was done so quickly this past week that I marveled the carpet was taken up and put down in one day, believe it or not. They'd worked on these walls for a while, but this uh, is going to enable us to continue to have better access to the rows and better lines of sight for those of you who sit on the sides. It'll be easier for our ushers to seat people, and we can add seats as needed. One of the things that we hope to uh, do with this extra space we have in here is provide more opportunities to pray for people. We will celebrate the Lord's Supper today, communion, and uh, as is always the case, we'll invite you to come for prayer after you've been served the Lord's Supper. If you'd like to be prayed for by one of our deacons or elders, <clears throat> you can come to the front, but we'd like to begin also having prayer in these back corners. Uh, you'll find it a little more quiet there. Some of you may feel a little less conspicuous walking to the back than the front. Our hope is to develop more of a culture of prayer in our church. One of our values is to be a prayer-fueled church. Prayer expresses our dependence upon the Holy Spirit to meet the needs of His people, to build His church. And it's particularly appropriate, I think, that we focus upon the Holy Spirit today because today is in traditional church calendar language, Pentecost Sunday. The, uh, the red cloths on the cross and table and the red candles are not up here by accident. They are representative of the fire of the Holy Spirit that fell on the day of Pentecost. And it's a fitting day, that is the day of Pentecost, to consider God's power as we talk about these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. This morning, we're going to look at the transition from the leadership of Elijah in ministry to that of Elisha. If you've been with us during uh, uh, past weeks, you may recall that we, we mentioned the significance of Elijah's name. Elijah appears very abruptly in the book of 1 Kings chapter 17 during a time in Israel's history when there was just uh, tremendous idolatry under the reign of the evil king Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel. Uh, Elijah arises proclaiming that the Lord God is the one true God, not the God Baal or Baal uh, who they worshipped. And it's significant that Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. Yahweh uh, meaning the Lord, Jehovah. Now the name of Elisha is very similar, isn't it? And uh, the meaning of this Hebrew name is, my God is salvation. Both these prophets were used to demonstrate God's power. That's why for this series, as you look at your bulletin, you see a dove on the front because the dove, as we'll see a bit later this morning, is representative of the power of the Holy Spirit as came upon Jesus at the River Jordan. So they're associated with God's power. And this morning, I'd like to look at that transition time and the significance of God's power that was tremendously at work in these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. First, just one further note about Elijah as we transition away from his ministry. He prefigures 
John the Baptist. It's an interesting thing, I think, to note that uh, it may seem a very insignificant thing. Yeah, that's all right. Everybody's got a different tone on their phone, so no telling <laughs> what you might hear if you don't cut your ringer off before you come in here a Sunday morning. I wonder where that trumpet was coming from in here. So anyway, just a little aside here in 2 Kings chapter 1, in this description of Elijah, he wore a garment of hair, maybe camel's hair, and a belt of leather about his waist. Now as we fast forward to the New Testament and John appears out of nowhere announcing repentance, is it at all significant that the scripture says John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist? I think it is significant because there are a number of connecting points between the ministry of Elijah uh, uh, and John the Baptist. In fact, the last verses of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament predicted uh, the sending of Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so the, the Jews were looking for a reappearance of Elijah. But what Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, as you see on the screen, chapter 11, all the law and the prophets prophesied until John, meaning John the Baptist. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. What does this mean? Does this mean that John the Baptist was the prophet Elijah reincarnated? No. It simply means that as Elijah sought to turn the hearts of the people of Israel back to the true and living God, John the Baptist would appear calling people to repent, preparing them for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the angel would say to John's father before he was born, that John would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he would go before him, that is Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so these prophets are significant for who they prefigure. Now, we focus today in the book of 2 Kings, chapters 1 and 2, on this transition from the ministry of Elijah to his successor, Elisha. And what we see in their ministries are powerful demonstrations of the Holy Spirit. One of the things I think that's significant about the power we see at work in their lives is that the power of God's Spirit is not limited to a certain time or a certain person or a certain place or a certain era. God demonstrates His power when He will, how He will, and through whom He will. Years before Elijah and Elisha, Moses had come. Moses was the great lawgiver of the Jewish people, but he himself was used for extraordinary miracles, and perhaps the most remembered one was the parting of the Red Sea. Well, when it came time for Moses to leave, who could possibly replace him? His successor was a man named Joshua. And as Joshua began to walk in Moses' shoes, God did something extraordinary to show his power through Joshua, to authenticate his ministry as Moses' successor. He parted the waters of the Jordan River 
in the time, the beginning of Joshua's ministry. And the verses you see on the screen. Waters of the Jordan were cut off from flowing. The waters coming down from above stood in a heap. Now as we look at the transition from Elijah to Elisha, we see this about God's power. In 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 8, before Elijah is taken up by God, he takes his cloak, he rolls it up, and he strikes the water. That is the water of the Jordan River. And the water was parted to one side and the other till the two of them, Elijah and Elisha, could go over on dry ground. Remarkable. Elijah's taken away, and Elisha has asked for a double portion, an even greater demonstration of God's power upon his life than upon his predecessor, Elijah. And when Elijah's taken up, his cloak falls to the ground. Elisha tears his own clothes, and he takes the cloak of Elijah. We sometimes talk about someone's mantle falling on someone else. I think this is where that thought would come from. What does Elisha do? He took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen and struck the water, saying, Where's the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and the other, and Elisha went over. What is the, the point of all this? God is doing these signs to show that his hand is upon these successors. He's authenticating his ministry. But God also does his signs to show his reality is the one true and living God, to show his power over nature, over the created world. And it seems that he often does this during times of great idolatry, what his people have turned away in order to turn his people back to him. The power of God's Spirit, it's clear, is not limited to Moses or Joshua or Elijah or Elisha, a certain era, a certain place. God is not limited. He comes in his power when he will, through whom he will. Further, we see the power of God's Spirit can come as fire to consume or is fire to purify and empower. Again, the red claws you see are uh, representative of the fire of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has told his followers, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. But we also see that judgment is sometimes seen in fire as well. And I want to touch on this. This is the more difficult of the two. This is the, the kind of idea that some people find very challenging about the Old Testament when they see God's judgment being manifested. And at the very beginning of the book of 2 Kings, we read the words that after the death of Ahab, that evil king, um, Moab had rebelled against Israel. And this king in Israel named Ahaziah uh, follows Ahab. He was evil himself. And so uh, Ahaziah is ill, and he sends messengers to inquire of Baal, Baalzebub, whether he's going to live, where Elijah intervenes and sends a word. Why are you sending to this idol rather than the true and living God? Well, the king responds, and he sends 50 soldiers to get 
Elijah. And what happens when those 50 soldiers and, they cap, and their captain find Elijah? Uh, he goes up and he says, oh man of God, the king says, come down. Now the king obviously had ill intent. He sent 50 soldiers. What does Elijah do? He said, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your 50. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him in his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain and his 50. And he answered and said, oh, man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. Elijah answered, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him in his 50. Again, the king sent a captain of a third 50. This king didn't quite get the message, did he? He didn't mind losing a few soldiers. He wanted to get at this Elijah. But something's different about this captain. The third one, this captain goes up and he fell on his knees before Elijah. He has respect for God's prophet. He's not mocking God's prophet. He went up and fell on his knees and said, Oh, man of God. Please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. What is the point of all this? Why is God doing a sign like this? Well, it's merely showing that those who worship idols, those who mock the true and living God, those who mock his prophets and scoff at their words get judgment. Now, people struggle with this in the Old Testament. Sometimes people will say, I don't like the Old Testament because of the judgment there. I want to I stick with the New Testament where there's love and mercy. Well, they, they obviously don't know there's judgment in the New Testament too. But before we leave this idea... God has not only used Elijah to part the Jordan, now he's used Elisha to part the Jordan. God shows a mighty demonstration of Elijah when this fire comes down from heaven. Now God's going to do something in the ministry of Elisha that is similar. And you may not like this. This may be a difficult passage to consider. Uh, while it's tempting to skip over it, I don't want to do that because this is one of those passages, if you're, if you're a graduate and you're headed to college next year and you're in a religion class, uh, unless your professor happens to be a, a, a biblically informed and believing uh, Christian, this is one of those stories that people mock, that they point at as skeptic and say, a Bible can't tr be true, a good God would never do this. And this is in the ministry of Elisha. Now, he's got God's mantle upon him, and we read in 2 Kings chapter 2, 23 and 24 of Elisha. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. Wow. This is one of those passages that people like to point at and say, good God wouldn't do that. That can't be, uh, the Old Testament can't be true. Uh, look at that. Who, who would believe something like that could happen, should happen? Well, Bible commentators <laughs> go to great lengths to try to soften this. I read one who said, 
Well, the language there could mean they were age 12 to 30, as if that does away with the difficulty of it. What's, what's the lesson here? Don't make fun of bald people for one, right? <laughs> but the fact is, this is included in God's Word for a reason. These are signs to God's people, many of whom were given over to worshiping idols. These are signs that you do not mock God by worshiping idols or by mocking His messengers and His words that they bring. And for those who and I've had this said to me before, the God of the Old Testament could not be the same God as in the New Testament. And when I hear that, what I want to ask a person who says that is, have you, have you read the New Testament? Because in the book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, in chapter 12 and verse 29, the writer of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians about the return of Jesus Christ in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, says when Christ returns, he'll come with mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And someone may ask, well, what, what hope do we have? Because while we may not be worshiping idols like the Baal of the Old Testament, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, that's where the mercy and the love and the grace of God comes in. Because Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah who would come and now has come, was the great judgment bearer. He took our judgment upon the cross. He, the great shepherd of the sheep, became the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Our sins were put out, poured upon him as if he were guilty of all. Our judgment was placed upon him as if he were the guilty one. He was the great substitute. He took our place. He bore our judgment so that through our faith in him, we could actually be credited with his own righteousness and say to God, our Father who art in heaven. We could approach him as his own very children. Certainly, there is a change from the way Elijah and Elisha dealt with those who mocked them, a change for those who are followers of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, uh, Gospel of Luke, rather, um, chapter 9 and verse 54, Jesus is walking along with his disciples, James and John. And they go by village of the Samaritans, and the Samaritans don't, don't accept Christ. And we don't know exactly what happens there, but here's what they say to Jesus. Lord, do you want us to call down fire upon them like Elijah did? What did Jesus do? He rebuked them. He rebuked them. Because as those who receive the mercy and the grace of God, Jesus' teaching is, bless those who curse you, love your enemies, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, so that Jesus himself on the cross when he's been being crucified looks at those who would crucify him and say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now, how do you and I live that kind of life? 
And the answer is the power of the Holy Spirit that comes in judgment when judgment is warranted also comes in power to purify, to enable us to love. So that the Bible says the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We see the power of God in Elijah and Elisha. You may have noticed uh, as, as the transition is occurring um, between Elijah and Elisha, they're walking and talking, and all of a sudden, chariots of fire and horses of fire separate the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Remarkable. The fire, again, is representative of God's power. Now, I want to skip ahead to this final point as we talk about God's power. And just emphasize this, that the power of God's Spirit is provided for every disciple of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit was at work in a prophet's life or, or a leader's life of some type, the words sometimes used are that the Spirit of God came upon them, Spirit upon them. There's a change in the New Testament when a person embraces the salvation of Jesus Christ. In that case, it can really be said that the Holy Spirit of God is within us. Jesus promised about the Holy Spirit he will be with you, and he will be in you. Notice that Jesus was baptized by John at the Jordan River. And remember, Elijah in some ways prefigured John the Baptist. And just as the transition from Elijah to Elisha occurs with this anointing, this mantle coming upon him at the Jordan River, now John would baptize Jesus at the Jordan River and God's Spirit would be seen descending upon him like a dove. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, in coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. John prepared the way for Jesus by preaching repentance, calling people back to God, much as Elijah did. He'd prepare the way, John would, for Jesus, who would then, through his death on the cross, his crucifixion, his resurrection, open the way for his followers to have the Holy Spirit not merely upon us, but within us. Jesus said, before he went to the cross, to his followers, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. The helper is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Yes, his power will come upon us. But as he said elsewhere, his power will be within us. That was fulfilled when the day of Pentecost came. The day we remember today in traditional church calendar, the day of Pentecost. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We see the fire, we see the power, fire to purify and empower. We may think, well, that was just for those early disciples. That's surely not for us today. But we read this in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. Peter stands up the day of Pentecost because a crowd gathers and he begins to preach. And he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. The teaching of the New Testament is if you have received the salvation of Jesus, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And you are called as his follower to not only know that, but to be filled with the Spirit, to be his witness to the world, his representative to take his power into the world. One of the things we see in Elisha is an eagerness for this power. When Elijah was about to leave, Elisha would not depart from his presence. And he said, if there's one thing I want, it is a double portion. I want more the power of God at work in me and through me than even was the case in your life. I think the teaching for us simply is that we too should be eager to have the power of God. As Jesus promised, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. I am often reminded of my weakness in being a witness for Jesus. My timidity, my hesitancy and and even just asking somebody outside of the church, somebody I don't know if I could pray for them, talk to them about the Lord. And the further I go in my relationship with the Lord, as time passes by, the more aware I become of my absolute need for the power of the Holy Spirit to serve God in any way. But sometimes he'll do something that reminds me that, that I get to be part of something he's doing. And that, that happened in a, you might think a very small way, this past Monday, when I drove into work that day, I saw the van of the, the company that was going to be pulling up our carpet and putting down the new carpet. And I looked in here this past Monday, and I was amazed at how quickly these workers, the chairs were cleared out, the old carpet had been torn up. They were putting down this new carpet. And by the end of the day, they'd done this whole sanctuary. But it was noontime, and I was in our prayer room. Uh, every Monday, we have prayer from 12 to 1 in our prayer room, and we have, I guess, since the church began. And um, there were several of us in there, and, and as we were praying, one of the prayers that, that was offered up was for the workers in our building, that just, you know, as they're working on this property, God would touch them, would do something in them, protect them, of course, but, you know, they ought to be blessed by working here at God's church. As we were praying, um, a thought came to me. I realized that the, the folks doing this work, 
um, because I'd stuck my head in here, were almost entirely Spanish-speaking. And, um, and as we were praying in there, the th a thought came to me because I saw uh, one of our deacons, Marta Rhodes, sitting on the other side of the circle in the prayer room. I know Marta's fluent in Spanish. She's from Colombia. And so after the prayer time, I said, Marta, would you just join me? And could we, we just offer to gather these workers together and maybe say a few words and pray for them? Well, they kind of gathered in the back, and when they heard Marta speak in their, in their heart language, all these men, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, maybe of them, gathered right outside the wall there. And I had just a moment to say a couple of words, to thank them for what they were doing of our church, but to, to pray for them. And as Marta began praying in the language they could understand, they all bowed their heads. And afterward, they seemed... They seem truly touched, I think, in a way, by that. But I share that story just because it, it, it creates in me the awareness of our need to be ever sensitive to the opportunities of the world around us and to let the Holy Spirit guide us in offering to pray for people, in sharing something of the gospel for people when we have the opportunity. This is our calling. Now, that may not seem like much, what happened on, on Monday, and compared to the miracles of Elijah, certainly not. But you and I are called to take God's power into the world. We're the ones, we're his messengers today. God's not sending angels to share the gospel with the world. You and me are it. We're, we're his plan. The Bible says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want to ask you this morning, are you living that way, those of you who know Jesus Christ? You know, it's, it's a marvelous thing and an almost incredible, I think, to think that the Holy Spirit of God would live with inside us. And it points to the great power of the gospel itself the great sufficiency and completeness of what Jesus did on the cross in the removal of our sin, that the, the very Holy Spirit of God could live within us as he does. And we celebrate what Jesus did this morning as he called us to do in what we call the Lord's Supper. On the screen, you will see words written by the Apostle Paul giving us what the Lord gave him about this holy thing we call communion or the Lord's Supper. He wrote this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke, and it said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I have to tell you that I, I, I don't really know entirely, and I'm not sure anyone could, the significance of what God does during communion. But I know and I believe that it is more than just, you know, a faint remembering of what Jesus did. There's something significant about this. And I, I believe that in part because of the warning that now follows in the words of the Apostle Paul. He goes, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. So this morning as we prepare to take communion, I want to take a few minutes in prayer for us to examine ourselves. And I'd say this to you, you don't have to be a member of our church to take communion here. You're welcome to take communion if it's your first time ever here. But I do think it's important, in light of the warning the Apostle Paul gives here, that you have embraced the salvation God gives us through Jesus. And if you're not sure whether you have, and you truly believe that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross and was raised from the dead for you, today would be a great day to have your first true communion as a genuine follower follower of Jesus by simply acknowledging your sin and inviting him to be your Savior and Lord. So let's take a moment and pray, prepare our hearts. At the end of our prayer, I'm going to invite you to join with me, if you are comfortable doing this, in uh, saying together the Apostles' Creed that you will see on the screen. But first, let's take a couple minutes to pray. Father, would you work among us now by your Holy Spirit. For any here who are not certain of their salvation, not certain that they can genuinely call Jesus Christ Lord, would you bring them to that place today, that place of acknowledging their sin and saying, Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you this day. For those of us who are believers, Lord, prepare us to take communion now properly before you. Renew our faith. Guide us as we prepare and bring to mind anything we need to confess before you as sin this morning.